Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure. Rather than lovers of God, they have a form of godliness, but they've denied its power. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you this morning for your unchanging truth that even though our day seems to be rapidly changing, you are sovereignly in control, and in your perfect time, the Lord Jesus will come with the shout, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in a moment's time. We pray for the heartache across our country as seemingly weekly we have these shootings. We pray that you would use this time of uncertainty to bring our nation and those that have never met you into a true saving relationship. Father, we recognize we are seeing the fruit of rebellion, the fruit of a nation that has no time for you. And so we know we can't change everyone, but we can be right with you. And so today, as we feed on your word, feed our souls, help me, fill me, anoint me, use me, speak to each and every person who hears your word today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Take God's word, would you? Revelation chapter 21, it's easy to find. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And if you're here for the first time, I'm doing a series, we're almost completed, called God's Prophetic Schedule. This is actually the 30th message in this series. We began with the rapture of the church and the rebirth of Israel. And while the rapture, the catching up into the air can happen at any moment, it's a signless event. The second coming is prophetically driven. Much has to happen. And one of the keys for the second coming to happen is Israel must be back in the land. God could have certainly raptured the church at 1000 AD, gathered the Jews from the nations across the planet, brought them back in and unfolded the schedule, but he didn't. He waited nearly two millennia, and in his sovereignty and providence, he has regathered and reinstituted them as a nation, and that should cause you to perk up because God says he would do that at the end of time. No one knows the day or the hour, but we can know the season. And so we've discussed verses like this. Jesus and Moses predicted a scattering across the planet and then a regathering. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 4, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. Jesus taught that after his departure, the temple would be destroyed and then again, the people would be scattered and they will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That began in 70 AD and the cleanup operation happened in 134 AD under the Emperor Hadrian who renamed the city, who renamed the country as Palestine. And of course, God also gave a warning that they would someday come back. Again, another scattering verse, Deuteronomy 28, moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples. How far? From one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. So you know right off he's not speaking of the Babylonian or the Assyrian dispersions. 
1,400 years before Christ, Moses also gave a promise by the Spirit of God. There the Lord said, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will, your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. So here's a chart that I shared with you earlier in this series. In 1890, there was an estimated 20,000 Jews in Israel. On the day they became a nation, on May the 14th, 1948, there were 600,000 Jews. And here's just a sample of countries. In Egypt, there were 66,000 Jews living in Egypt. On that day, today, less than 200. Iraq, Syria, Yemen, so on, uh, right down to Ethiopia that had 50,000 and only 7,500 there today. And of course, they're not allowed to leave. And so the final regathering actually happens at the second coming. But for God to fulfill the final plans concerning the people of Israel, they have to be back in the land. They have to be reconstituted as a nation. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 43 speaks to. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Ezekiel, the prophet, also spoke of this regathering. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Today in Israel, over 100 nations have been brought, Jewish people from 100 nations of the world, and he gave them back the land. That's only happened to one people in, the, in recorded human history who were scattered, who didn't then become diffused and intermarry, but these people were scattered and God brought them back into the land. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 38. We studied this when we looked at the war of Gog and Magog. After many days, which is an expression in the Old Testament meaning a very, very long period of time, You will be summoned, and if you know the context, he's speaking about a coalition of nations led by Russia, including Turkey and Iran and a few others. You will be summoned in the latter years. Again, a phrase used by the prophets to refer to the end of time before the second coming. After many days you will be summoned in the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword. That's Israel today, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. We've witnessed this in our lifetime. The prophet Zechariah, he ministered around 500 and at 480 years before Christ, he put in pen his uh, prophecy and he too spoke of a scattering and of a return. Listen to these words from Zechariah 10. By the way, this is nearly 100 years after The Jews had been in Babylon and had been come back into the land. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries, and they with their children will live and come back. So for the first time in some 1,900 years, the Jewish people are back in the land. God says that happens at the end of time. No one knows the day or the hour. But the scripture affirms we can know the season. Add to that, he said that the season morally would be like Noah's day, which were days of violence and immorality. He said the season would be like Lot's day, which were days of homosexuality. He said the season would be days of apostasy, a growing 
hatred towards the things of God and a turning away from the faith. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, well, let me skip that for just a moment. I'll come back to that later in the sermon. But what I want you to see is that for 1,900 years, Israel, for all practical purposes, was not in the land, but they are in the land today. That is a miracle. Who would have ever believed it except those who knew their scriptures? Uh, And so for this reason, the writer of the Hebrews can make this statement. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what we're supposed to do when we get together. It's not self-focused, like, what can you do for me? But what can I do for you? How can we stimulate one another to love and good deeds? Not forsaking our assembling together. And sadly, there are some watching me on TV who are members of the church because they're too lazy to drive in. You're in disobedience. You're not there because you have to be. You're there because you want to be. You're forsaking the assembling together of the brethren. And Scripture says, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some. There's the problem is when it's a habit. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the writer of the Hebrews assumed that you could see the day drawing near. What day? The day of Christ's return from heaven. And again, as these wicked days, as these lascivious days, as these immoral days, as these evil days grow, he's saying all the more you need to get together to encourage one another that your heart might be guarded from it. Now, I say all that to say that our Father's heart is just one heartbeat away. You could be dead before the day is over, as could I, or Jesus could come back. And so God has prepared a better place for us, and that's what we're examining today. We're going to use a number of passages, but we're going to use as our launching pad here, Revelation chapter 21. We want to begin where we left off last time, follow along starting in verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardinox, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed." And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying 
shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, sadly, today, born-again believers are largely the byproduct of 20-minute sermons filled with fluff and stuff and foolishness instead of sound exegetical teaching. And that's a result of the seeker-sensitive movement, and so we have jettisoned the truth sola scriptura, that scripture is sufficient to save people, to grow people, to mature people. And so, like cultists, there are all kinds of books that have come out on heaven. Cultists add to the scripture, even the Roman church. They, from time to time, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from his chair on an issue of faith and morals, they, he supposedly speaks with the equal authority of scripture. And so all these books now evangelicals read on heaven are beyond the realm of Scripture. One of the most popular books that came out about a decade ago is called Heaven is for Real. And it tells the story of a four-year-old boy, Colton Burpo, who has a, a, a death experience, he claims, as his appendix burst in the operating room. And he said he died and went to heaven, and he came back and he told his parents what they saw. And with the vivid imagination of a four-year-old, and I'm so sure some additions from their parents, they earned millions of dollars on the backs of foolish evangelicals who bought their books, not wanting to be outdone and wanting to get on the bandwagon. Thomas Nelson Publishers came out with a book about a year later entitled My Trip to Heaven. And I received more junk mail on these two books than just about anything in all my years of the pastorate, trying to convince us why we should buy these books. In fact, they had Bible studies for adults, for teens, and yes, even young boys and girls on their grammar school level. And of course, as you might expect, many of the details in these books, they never agree. For example, Colton Burpo in his book, Heaven is for Real, when he says he saw the Holy Spirit, he described him as bluish and transparent, almost ghost-like, and that he did not have wings. By contrast, David Taylor, in his book, My Trip to Heaven, states on page 67 that the Holy Spirit is, quote, bright white, has a body, and also has huge, beautiful white wings as part of his form. And again, these are contradictions in all of these books are in violation to the warning that God gives at the end of the Revelation in chapter 22. Colton also says that he was given a picture of the battle of Armageddon, and he writes, and I quote, the battle was with Jesus, the angels and the good people going against Satan, the monsters and the bad people. I got to see it happening. And I got to see my dad in the Bible. Well, if you are here for the message concerning the Armageddon and the great white throne judgment, you know that that is anything but true so far from what Scripture says. And of course, I mentioned last week uh, Alex Malarkey's book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, who when he found Christ as a teenager, he said, what I said to my parents that were recorded was a lie. I made it all up. These Christian publishers have left their roots. 
Most of them can no longer be trusted because sometimes they will publish a sound book and at the same breath they will publish a book in contradiction to Revelation 22:19. But again, they're in it for the bucks. They're in it to make money. Jesus, when he had an encounter with Nicodemus, reminded him, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. If you remember in the context, he's speaking to him about the new birth and how to go to heaven. And he's reminding him that he can speak with full authority on how to go to heaven because that's where he came from. That was his home. The Son of God uniquely can speak with authority and those whom he commissioned to write the New Testament. So simply applied, all of these books about dying and going to heaven go beyond what Christ and the apostles have written, and they should flat out be rejected. But it does raise an important issue because it reminds us that people have a hunger to understand, and that's where the pulpit is to open the Scripture. Paul said you should think about heaven. He said, set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. And so we've been learning from the only authoritative source, Holy Scripture. Now, when you hear the word heaven, maybe there's some things that come to mind. But what comes to mind, you want to be in sync with a renewed mind from Scripture. And so if you were here last time, I highlighted six aspects of heaven, starting here in verse 1, where heaven is described as a permanent place. Then I saw a repeated statement all the way through the Revelation when he introduces a a new uh, subject. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. Here's a chart just to help you to see the broader prophetic schedule. The next event is called the rapture. When we're carried up into heaven, we face the judgment of the just. Again, One second before you die, it's determined whether or not you go to heaven based on what you've done with Christ. This is a judgment to see what your reward will be like in the coming millennial kingdom and throughout eternity. And then after the judgment seat of Christ, there's the marriage of the Lamb. On the earth, after the rapture, we've noted there's a space of time. We don't know how long it is. It appears logically to be a short time, weeks, days, or months, but the seven-year period will begin when the Antichrist signs a treaty, a covenant, with Israel. And so that 70th week prophecy in Daniel 9 is described, and it's divided by Daniel and by the New Testament into two halves. In the first half, three and a half years, tribulation. The second half, great tribulation. Those who witness that who are saved during the tribulation because they had not heard the gospel prior, Jesus said, when you see these things, the things that are described during the time of the tribulation, know that he is near. Not that he is here, but that he is near. And so immediately after the tribulation, a very short period of time, but enough time so no one can calculate the day or the hour. Christ physically comes to the earth and he rules for a thousand years. As the next chart illustrates in a broader schematic, again, the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, 
the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, and then the final of all judgments called the great white throne judgment, where heaven and earth flee because they're destroyed. The great white throne judgment, one of seven judgments, but the very final judgment that takes place. And then we enter into eternity future. So I saw a new heaven and a new earth, which tells you that the old heaven and the old earth was gone. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Second Peter describes God taking the entire planet and burning it with fire. So this is not some fix-up plan as some has presented it and gone against major mainline evangelical teaching. This is a whole new planet, a whole new heavens. And that's fitting because uh, the one that we're on right now is stained and polluted by sin. It's a byproduct of the fall, and so God's going to make a brand new one. So it's permanent, the one that is coming. In addition, it's prepared. It's a prepared place. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from, out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so this word made ready, we noted last time, is the Greek word often translated prepared. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And so the fact that the new Jerusalem literally comes down from heaven tells you that it's in existence right now. It's there. It's the place your loved ones are. When you're absent from the body, you are present in the new Jerusalem. It comes down out of heaven through a new heaven on to a new earth. And so the new Jerusalem will literally sit on a planet, a new planet called earth. So very often we think of heaven just in place of the city that's above, but that's just the capital city. That city is going to sit on a brand new planet. And so we noted there's a number of different names. This is not a complete list, but these are the more popular ones you'll see in scripture. The Father's house, the third heaven, paradise, not to be confused with Old Testament paradise, the kingdom of God. It's called heaven, very simply. It's called the new Jerusalem. It's called the holy city and so on. And so it's described as a bride prepared for her husband, adorned. And we noted that the word adorned is the word cosmeto. We get our word cosmetic from it. It means to decorate, to make beautiful. And just as a bride will do everything in her power to make herself beautiful, to present herself to her groom on her wedding day, God is going to prepare and put the final touches. And we'll see one aspect of the final touches. You'd say, I think it's done already. It's not. We're going to see a final touch today among many others that may not even be recorded. What is that final touch? What comes to your mind? Think about that for a moment. So the Lord is making this place absolutely beautiful by all of his power the God who can paint the wings of a butterfly and create the intricacies of a rose is making a place that is absolutely breathtaking. It is permanent, it is prepared, it is pleasing. We noted from verse three, if you were here last time, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. 
right now as born-again people, we've been made alive under the old covenant. God had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. And we worship the Lord as a living temple of the Spirit of God. We worship him whom we cannot see. But this will dramatically change in the future because the text says, and God himself will be among them. Uninterrupted eternal fellowship will be in the presence of God himself. Further, verse four, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Why? The first things have passed away. In heaven, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Yes, at the judgment seat of Christ, we will suffer loss, some more than others, when our works are tested with fire, and God in his compassion will himself wipe away the tears from our eyes. But the point is here, the first way of life, the old planet Earth with its universal language as it's described here as death, mourning, crying, and pain, that's all gone to a brand new way of life. And again, people say, this is too good to be true. And you know what we say when someone says, this is too good to be true. It's usually too good to be true, depending on the one doing the telling and the saying. And just so that no one would misunderstand, the Spirit of God then leads John to write here in verse 5, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new, And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. These are faithful, trustworthy, true words, depending on your English Bible. In addition, verse 6, we learn that heaven is a purified place. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, a title given to God the Father and God the Son because they are equal. The beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Because salvation is gifted, it's not earned. I spoke to many people yesterday who thought they could earn their way to heaven, that they could merit heaven. And it's the common misunderstanding that most people have today. Heaven comes without cost to you. It costs God everything. It costs him his precious blood. But you do not merit it like any gift it is given freely. The gift of God is eternal life. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What a distinction that's made beginning here in verse 8 with that little word, but. He's drawing a contrast between verses 1 through 7 and what follows in this verse. He's describing those who practice as a lifestyle these sins. Did you note them? These are people who are not overcomers that we just read of. These are people who are overcome by sin. These are people who are mocked by a different way of life. And so they are cowardly. You know, some people will not come down in front of a church on a Sunday morning if a church even has an invitation anymore. Most churches have dissolved it. It's not cool enough. But they're cowardly. Why? Because they're unbelieving. Listen, if you know Jesus on the inside, 
you'll be unashamed of him on the outside. And on the outside, we display our public confession of faith via baptism. Baptism always follows conversion. They're described as abominable. That is a word that means polluted in your mind or in your body. We live in a world like that. Murderers. Again, we just witnessed yesterday. It just seems to be weekly, these mass shootings that are coming across America. Not to mention that last week, Planned Parenthood bragged that they had 368,000 abortions last year. That's not something you brag about. That's something you will face the living God with. Not to mention those who hate their brother are equated as a murderer. There's hate murderers as well. There's the immoral, the pernea, that would include fornication, premarital sex, it would include extramarital sex, it would include homosexuality, it would include transgenderism, and any other kind of sexual perversion you can think of. Sorcerers, pharmakia, we got our word pharmacy, the illicit use of drugs and alcohol. Idolaters, idolatry is anything you put above God, could be a person, it could be a thing. And finally, liars, and as they'll underscore this morning, those who lie as a way of life. So it's permanent, it's prepared, it's pleasing. It's also purified and priceless. Verse 9, it's a priceless place. Look at verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So as John gets this aerial view, as he sees from above, what strikes him is the glory of the city how it just glows with incredible light. He describes crystal clear jasper. It's an incredible picture. And again, this is the place where your loved ones are at if they knew the Lord. Don't feel sorry for them. They're in a magnificent place, enjoying the splendor of heaven this morning. And so he describes it further, this new Jerusalem, not only as priceless, but as private. And so we delved into this last time in verse 12. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So again, I think it's significant that God has forever engraved into this eternal city the 12 names of the 12 tribes and the 12 names of the 12 apostles, which is the final nail in the coffin for covenant theology. For those who said God's done with Israel, and many who teach that, Now it's estimated 100 million Americans believe that, that God is done with the Jewish people. Nothing could be further from the truth. But those who came out of Roman Catholicism, that is really in many ways, the, 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 not purely the Genesis, because it came prior to Augustine, 
but they're the ones who spread it like wildfire that the church replaced Israel. And we have some of the most anti-Semitic popes in the history of the world. And when you study these popes, it's embarrassing, especially when you meet a Jewish person because they think this is what Christianity is about. They hate us, they despise us, and even Calvin and Luther said some of the most despicable things about the Jewish people. But God has written 12 names of 12 tribes and 12 apostles because he is affirming now that all of the Old Testament saints who are saved by their faith in the coming Messiah and all the New Covenant saints who look back at what Messiah has done, that we will be together, Jew and Gentile, into one eternal family. But he's underscoring the place that the Messiah, the people that the Messiah came from. And I said to you last time, I hope your best friend is a Jew because if he is not your best friend, Jesus, you'll never go there. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so people have to come through these 12 pearly gates. You can't scale the wall. Jesus used an illustration in John 10 of someone who does that, and they're described like a thief and as a robber. So will you be there? You can be there. God wants you to be there. I will often ask people, how sure are they that they would go there? And they'll say 50 or 25 or zero, and sometimes 100, but with the wrong answer, a false assurance. You want to be there, you can be there, and if you don't go there, it's because you will have rejected the Lord Jesus in his way of salvation. You can't just accept his teachings in terms of as a moral code to be modeled and followed. You must accept him as your personal savior. Now, that's just the outside. We've barely even stepped in the inside. Three truths there in your outline. That's all by way of introduction that I want to underscore this morning. The first concerns the size of the Father's house, the size. Now, about four and a half hours from here, some of you have been to the most visited home in all of America. It's in Asheville, North Carolina, built by George Vanderbilt. You know it is the Biltmore Estate. He called it a little mountain escape. And he built it, of course, after a French chateau. It had luxuries that few could imagine in that day, an elevator, uh, cold and running water in the house, an intercom system, a bowling alley, an indoor pool, uh, plumbing even in the horse stables. Uh, the driveway just to get into it is three miles long. It's 175,000 square feet. But I want to tell you that my father's house, in comparison to that house, that house is like a lean-to. It's like a tent compared to what God has prepared for his people. And so Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But he tells us, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again at the rapture and receive you to myself to take us where? To heaven. The second coming, he comes to earth. The rapture, he carries us up to heaven. That where he is, we may be as well. And so the Biltmore, it's impressive, but it's nothing compared to what we're going to look at this morning. Look at verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. So this is the same angel that we met back in chapter 17. 
Remember, seven angels, seven bowls of wrath, and one of those angels gave John a tour of the devil's city. The great harlot, as it's described, the headquarters of the Antichrist and a false religion and a false economy during the time of the tribulation. We read it. Let me refresh your mind from our study. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. That place is going to be obliterated and destroyed even before the second coming, then melted at the uh, end of time. But in either case, it's an evil city, whereas God's city is the city of the bride, the bride of Israel, the bride of Christ. And so it's called the bride city. It's called the holy city. Again, it says this angel came and he had a gold measuring wall. And so appropriate that he would have a measuring rod made out of gold because the temple and the tabernacle, if you've studied it, all of the furniture is either made of pure gold or overlaid in gold. And so he uses a gold measuring stick. Verse 16 said, the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles its length and width and height are equal. So God is giving us the measurements of this city. And notice here in verse 16, they're equal in length, width, and height. So this city is as long as it is wide as it is high. Now, occasionally, rarely, you will hear someone describe, well, a pyramid could have three equal lengths. And so this city is described as a pyramid. It's a very much of a minority view, but it's certainly not true. And let me explain to you why. We do know, like a pyramid, this city that God has is equal in length, width, and height. Now, the scripture, though, I think describes the city that we're going to look at as a cube. And I'll explain why in just a moment. Now, here is a pyramid. It's actually eight-sided. A pyramid has eight sides. This is the great pyramid. You say it has four sides. No, it doesn't. It has eight sides. Here's a picture. Uh, a couple times a year, uh, in 1940, someone flying with the British Air Force flew over the Great Pyramid, and they say around the fall equinox and the, and the um, winter equinox, the, the way that it's shadowed, you can see the indentations. So it actually has eight edges, whereas the cube has 12 edges, and 12 is significant. Because there's 12 gates, there's 12 foundation stones, there's a measurement of 12,000 stadia. Add to that, there are other places where length, height, and width are described. Only three measurements to describe a cube. No doubt most of you know this passage from Kings, 1 Kings 6.20. It says, the inner sanctuary... He's talking about the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. Here's a picture of the Holy of Holies in the next diagram. Again, that intersection is cube-like in shape. And so... If indeed the Holy of Holies is a cube and God gives three measurements, in many ways the Holy of Holies is the very place in the tabernacle later in the temple where the presence of God would come. 
It becomes a miniature of the eternal city, which is a gigantic cube of sorts. And so look again at verse 16. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width, and he measured the city with the, with the rod, 1,500 miles. If you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, you'll see 12,000 stadion. That's literally what the Greek text says. A stadion is 600 feet. And so the NAS interprets it for you by saying 1,500 miles in its length, its width, and its height. So letting Scripture interpret Scripture, since the Holy of Holies is a cube and uses three measurements, I have no doubt in my mind that God did not model his city after a pagan monument, the Great Pyramid, in honor of the great so-called sun god, Ray, that they worshiped. But it's important, these measurements. Sometimes people say, well, is heaven big enough the capital city for everyone to go? And the answer is yes. This city would go as it's a square from Canada to Mexico, from the Atlantic Ocean to the Rockies. And again, it's cubed, and so it's as wide as it is high. Uh, Think about this for just a moment. Here's a slide of the tallest building in the world. It's called the Burj Khalafi Tower. It's in Dubai. It's 2,717 feet above sea level. Uh, Here's a slide of the tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. It's 29,029 feet above sea level. And compare it with this picture here. Here is a picture of a building that is 15 miles high into the stratosphere compared to Mount Everest. And if you look real carefully over in that little right-hand corner, you'll see the highest building in the world. But the new heaven is 1,500 miles high. It's 100 times this particular height. And so this city is so high that God alone is shouting, I am the true and the living God. Its size is beyond beyond imagination. It describes the majesty and the power of God. And yes, it can accompany billions of people if he so chooses. The great biblicist, Henry Morris, his classic work that I read from cover to cover is a new Christian called the Genesis Flood. He's predicted that there was 100 billion people who have lived in the history of man. And he reasoned, well, even if 20% of those 100 billion were believers, then that would mean there could be 20 billion people in the capital city, enough for each person to have his own private estate with 75 acres, not to mention parks and everything else you could think of. So we live down here on earth, And what God is building is just staggering. We don't always think of the greatness of God. The heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. His attributes, his power, his nature, Paul argues, are seen in the things that he created. If you were to replace the moon with Saturn, this is what it would look like. This is what you'd see every day. Even a single comet would look like this if it could land on a city unscathed. When you look up at the stars at night and you see the Milky Way, you see what's encompassed in this yellow ring here. But we have discovered that we've mapped out, we scientists have mapped out 100,000 galaxies. This is just one. 
more recently part of a super cluster uh, that the Milky Way is included in called Lionikia. In either case, what you see, what you observe from the planet is just a small part of God's handiwork. And so when God creates a new Jerusalem, the size, and again, it's just a capital city, is beyond imagination. It's not only a demonstration of his power, it's a demonstration of his creativity and his love for you. Secondly, beyond the size of the Father's house, let's think about the splendor, the splendor of the Father's house. This place is beyond value. It's priceless, which is obvious just by looking at the walls without ever even walking inside. Notice uh, the walls as they're described beginning in verse 17. And he measured its wall, 72 yards. The Greek says 144 cubits. So the city wall was evidently 144 cubits. That's 216 feet, 72 yards thick, which is just shy of three quarters of a football field to put it in perspective. According to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Why does he say that? Because someone might think, well, they're using a different system of measurement. And he just wants to remind us that the rod that the angel is using to perform his measurements match what people on earth in John's day would use. It's the same system that we use today. In verse 18, he begins describing what these walls are made out of. He says the material of the wall was jasper. So the walls, of course, they're not here to keep us in because the gates are open and the walls are not to keep the wicked out because we've already seen the great white throne judgment has already taken place. All the lost of all time are already eternally consigned in the lake of fire. But again, these walls here are for the glory of God. Can you imagine approaching this city? Imagine if this were your last day. God, according to Luke 16, would send some of his angels. You know, when you go into a place that's unknown to you, you, it's always nice when someone who's familiar with what you're walking into leads you there. God, in a very personalized way, will lead you into his presence by his angels. It's one of their many ministries that we cover in the course on angelology at searchthescriptures.org. 99% of Jasper, I'm told, looks like this. I mean, it's incredible. What does that remind you of? Well, it reminds me of blood, of the blood of Christ. In addition, verse 18 says, the material of the wall was Jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The whole city is pure gold. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, The Brits some decades ago dictated that you have to build your buildings out of limestone. And they did that for a reason. Many of them were Christians, and they did it as a gesture for the new Jerusalem that's before us. And Jerusalem is a great city to go to at sunset because the buildings take on kind of a golden hue. Here's a new hotel that I took a picture of on one of my trips. And again, it's made out of that almost yellowish gold stone that at the setting of sun looks like, quote unquote, what we call a golden city. But the real city that's above is covered in gold. And the city was pure gold, light clear glass. That underscored in the first century, clear glass was the most expensive mirror you could get, high quality. And so he's saying, this is not cheap gold. 
This is pure gold, like clear glass. And so like the jasper, the gold is to be taken literally. Again, he's just giving us a a glimpse. And then further, he describes, as we'll see in a moment, all these priceless gems. So here we have these 12 foundation stones, these 12 names of the 12 apostles written on it, and we, and we have the 12 tribes, both sets of names etched into the city. It's just breathtaking. It will take your breath away when you see it. Now, as this slide shows, this is a, a large stone. If you go to Jerusalem for about the last uh, 12, 13 years, you've been able to take a tour of the rabbinical tunnels. And they bring you down to street level in Jesus' day. And this was one of the foundation stones in the platform that Herod built. He built a platform, and on the top of that platform sat the temple, which, of course, as Jesus prophesied, was razored off. But the foundation stones still remain. And you have to go way down, and here is a sample stone that Herod used. Now, how they got it there, we don't know. It's weighs 600 tons. Usually when we go down there, I have one person stand on one end and another person stand on the other end just to give you a, a, a sense of how long it is. It is very long. It's 45 feet long. It's 12 feet high. It's 14 feet deep. It weighs 600 tons. The weight of two 747s, 200 elephants. But that stone is kids' play according to what our Father is creating for us above. The walls of the city will require absolutely gigantic foundation stones. And remember, these foundation stones are made out of gemstones. Look at verse 19 in the various colors. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, again, normally blood red. The second, sapphire, a deep blue tone. And by the way, in Exodus 24, we are told that the stone under God's feet is sapphire. The third is chalcedony. This is a gemstone that is a greenish blue color. The fourth is emerald. It's a deep green color. The fifth is sardinex. A gemologist say it's a, it's a white stone with some bands of brownish-red streaks in it. The sixth is sardius. It's a deep red gemstone. The seventh is chrysolite, kind of a gold-colored gemstone. The eighth is beryl, a teal blue. And I, I know some people make rings out of their so-called birthstones. The ninth is topaz, a golden greenish color. The tenth is chrysoprase, which is a pale green gemstone. The eleventh is jacinth, that has a pale pale violet color. And then the twelfth is amethyst, which is a deep, rich purple color. We're not even inside yet. These are just the foundation stones. We have chips of them down here on earth. God is going to have these as the foundation stones of his house. This is the Father's house. It is priceless. It is breathtaking. And the 12 gates, notice verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. Now, if you're a good real estate agent, you're going to tell the person whose home you're selling, get the front door looking sharp. 
Even if the house is a little trashy and worn inside, at least get the front door in shape. That's their first impression about whether you care about the house. Well, there are 12 gates, 12 front doors, we might say. And again, we saw last time the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel on it. Again, to underscore the people that God used to bring the Savior of the world. But notice each one of these gates was a single pearl. Despite all the ridiculous jokes about St. Peter at the pearly gates, he's not in any of them. And of course, the thickness of the wall, we're told, is 144 cubits or 224 or 220 feet or as the NES says 72 yards that's a single pearl in terms of its diameter if we took the the roof off of this 1800 seat auditorium we couldn't diameter wise fit that pearl in now some of you have pearls on this morning it's a precious stone and you know how they're formed there's an irritant and that little animal, crustacean, or whatever its technical term is, usually caused by sand. And, and then the oyster wraps that silky smooth substance around that irritant, around that irritant, around that irritant, and out comes a, a lovely pearl. It's not by accident that God has these gates made from pearl because indeed it was the Lord Jesus' flesh that was bruised And we will be reminded even by the colors and, yes, by the gates themselves. In the street, notice verse 21, in the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Gold is commonplace in heaven. But it's an important element of the new Jerusalem because gold in Scripture is a symbol, among other things, of God's deity. Now, all the gold in the world I own is right here on my finger, and it's a cheap grade because I was about broke when I bought our rings when we got married. This is the best gold, like transparent glass. What asphalt is down here, gold is up there. And the Greek noun here used for street, though it's singular, can refer to a main artery or a city square or to multiple streets. And because this street is continuous, it's not really in error to say that the streets of heaven are made out of gold. People say, do you think that we will literally walk on streets of gold? Yes, I will walk on streets of gold with a real resurrected body with real legs and glorified feet and everything else. And I look forward to that magnificent day. It's what God has planned for us. Now remember, Hebrews 11, we studied it last week. Those Old Testament saints were looking for a city whose maker and builder is God. And let me just say, I'm grateful for the streets of gold and for the gates of pearl, but what makes heaven heaven is Jesus. The Lord God will be there and will be there in his presence. There's a size, there's a splendor. Third, there's the superiority of the Father's house. The superiority of the Father's house. Notice verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Now, John noted that some items were missing from the city, and here he's saying there's no temple in this city. Now, that's interesting. There was a time when there was a tabernacle on earth, then the first temple, and then the second temple, and then there's the tribulational temple. And if you go to heaven today, you're going to see the temple. 
If you were with me in my study of Revelation, we covered this because John in chapters 5 and 6 actually describes some of the temple furniture. Now, hold on to this. Listen to this verse, chapter 8 and verse 3. Here's a sample. And an, an angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Or Revelation 11, 19, 11, 19. there John records, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. Or if you know the writer to the Hebrews, he quotes Moses from Exodus 25, and there he writes, Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And the word pattern is the word tupos. And so we speak of types. You will hear of a preacher speak of an Old Testament type. An Old Testament type is a picture of a coming New Testament reality. And if you know the book of Hebrews, you know that these were Jews who suffered greatly because they confessed Jesus as Lord. And so their businesses were being boycotted, boycotted their, their friends were deserting them. And so to avoid persecution, some of them went back and they were involved in temple worship. And the writer of the Hebrews gives some severe warnings, you don't do that. You suffer persecution if need be. That's a regression. You don't go back and worship shadows. Those were shadows of things to come. We worship the reality. The Lord Jesus, those were just copies. Now, if the rapture happened today, we'd go to heaven and we would see the temple. Moses didn't just come up with some, hey, I think I'll build a tabernacle like that. He was shown a picture of what the tabernacle was to be like, and the temple was modeled on a larger scale after the tabernacle. And if you go to heaven today, you will see the temple in heaven. The rapture happens, you go to heaven, you'll see, among other things, the temple of God. You'll come back at the second coming, you'll rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, and there's a millennial temple. What's the function of the millennial temple? A temple that's never been built, whose details and dimensions are much larger than anything that's ever been built in terms of a temple by the Jews. It's never been built, but it's going to function. And Zechariah and Isaiah and other prophets say the nations of the world are going to come there and worship. Now remember, the church goes up, then we come back. And those who are survivors of the great tribulation, they're tribulation saints. Those who died, they're raised at that point with Old Testament saints. We study that. But tribulation saints who survive, they walk into the, the millennial reign in their natural bodies. And they will live like people lived before Noah's day. A thousand years, if a man lives only to be a hundred, he's considered cursed. A man's life will be like the age of a tree, the prophet will write. They will have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and their children will have to make decisions for Christ just like yours do. God has children. I ask people, why should God let you in heaven? My dad was a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. We have a long life, but what about you? God has children, and he doesn't have grandchildren. And some of those people will need to decide for Christ. And one of the teaching tools that God will require the nations to come and visit 
will be the millennial temple. And I suspect that when we're carried into heaven during those seven years, among other things, God will train us in all of the beautiful significance and patterns of the temple. And maybe he'll use us during the millennial reign of Messiah to teach lost people of what the temple meant and how it shouts that Jesus is Lord. But at this point, the temple is now gone because there's no need for it. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. God is its temple. Revelation 1 describes the Spirit of God as part of it. And here, the Lord God, the Almighty, a reference to the Father and the Lamb. And there we will have perfect communion. In heaven, the very presence of God will fill the entire place. You know, we try not to separate the secular from the spiritual because if you understand Scripture, whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. Your work is spiritual. What you did this week, whether you're a mom changing diapers or cleaning your home, or you're a dad and you went out and earned some sweat money to provide for your family, that is part of your worship. Worship is not just what we do here when we sing, but your life is a worship. But in heaven, in the truest sense, the secular and the spiritual, yes, we'll work in eternity future, but in the truest sense, it will all come together. And we will, in all that we do, be in the presence of God, worshiping him nonstop. And the city has no need, verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Do you remember when Peter just got a glimpse of the transfiguration or Peter, James, and John? They're on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see the Lord Jesus and he is immediately transfigured and he's there with Moses and Elijah. And yes, you'll recognize people in heaven. You'll know their name. Just like the rich man who's in hell, hell current, Hades, recognizes Lazarus who's on the other side in Old Testament paradise. He knew who he was. And you will know your loved ones in heaven. You probably won't even have to learn people's names, I suspect. But they knew immediately. They had never met Moses and Elijah before. That's Moses. That's Elijah. They knew it. But the Lord is transfigured. And the Bible says he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his garments became as white as light. And this is in his pre-glorified body. Or how about on that day, the Lord Jesus from heaven, he's already ascending, he pulls back the shade and he lets a beam of light comes down on that Damascus road. It's midday. You light a candle at midday, it does no good. When the sun is highest and brightest in the sky, it doesn't give off any light. At midday, light came down from heaven. It was so brilliantly light, it literally blinded the apostle Paul, gave him three days to think. God is light. John will write, this is a message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. Light in scripture is used metaphorically to dispel ignorance. Light is used metaphorically in scripture to uh, show the opposite of darkness, that is sin. 
He simply says, God is light. He is holy. He is pure. And here in this city, there's no need of the sun or the moon or the stars. Why? Because the glory of the Father, the glory of the Spirit, and the glory of the Son will light the place up. It will be brilliant. It will be magnificent. Now, remember, he doesn't tell us much about the new earth or the new heavens. Because for 2,000 years, people have wanted to know, where is my loved one at? And so we studied how God focuses on the capital city only. It's very possible that in the new earth, there'll be sun, there'll be daylight and evening and dusk. We don't know for sure. But in the city itself, it will be bright, there will be no night. And then verse 24, he goes on to say, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I mean, what a beautiful picture. The nations. When will the Great Commission be fulfilled? During the tribulation period. I've already noted that. This gospel of the kingdom shall go to the whole world and then the end shall come. We've been blessed as a congregation to put into two people groups the Bible who didn't have a Bible. And you, through your generosity and on our other campuses in Graniteville and Grace, you paid for those translations. And this morning, those people have a copy of Holy Scripture. But during the tribulation period, these 144,000 Jews are going to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And through their ministry, John can write on, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne of the Lamb. It will be fulfilled, the Great Commission. God will pull off what we seemingly are unable to do in our day. And yes, even kings will be there, prime ministers. Presidents, yes, not all of them are reprobates. Some are believers and love the living God, along with all the regular folks from all the nations, but no one will be there strutting like a peacock. The Lord God alone will be glorified. Look at verses 25 and 26. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Again, they're here to glorify God. And again, the gates of this city, this is just the capital city. They're never closed. That would have jumped out at a first century reader. You know, we see all these murders. I don't know how many we've had this year. 80-something, I think, last I heard. It's more than one a week. Mass shootings. Talking about mass shootings, four or more. People lock the doors tonight. You never know who's out there. And in Bible times, you know, you found a sense of security in the conclave you lived in, and the city gates were secure, and you had people watching the walls. You can throw away the key in this place. Gates are open. All sin, all evil has been forever crushed and gone. And to highlight that all sin is absent, both in and outside of this city, he says in verse 27, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We've seen sin and sinners have already been judged and dealt with in the lake of fire. And so all vestige of evil has been forever eradicated Nothing unclean. 
meaning there'll be no sinners and there'll be no sin in us because we will see him and be like him, the scripture says. And no one who practices abomination and lying practices, that's the key word, Can a Christian lie? Can a Christian do some abominable, unclean act? Yes, you have the power to do anything. And let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. And if you think you've grown enough where you can't commit some sin, you're tempting the devil to tempt you. But as a way of life, when you're born again, your way of life changes. And so he's underscoring here, the only occupants of this city are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, there are many, many lessons we can learn. Let me make a couple of applications. Number one, this passage gives us hope. This passage gives us hope. It gives us hope in the most painful of situations. As there are believers worldwide this very day, who will lose their life for following the Lord Jesus, and they know it. There are other believers who are suffering heartache because they've lost someone they loved, a child, a grandchild, a spouse. There are others who are dealing with abusive relationships. Many across the planet who are struggling to survive, and America has no time to give God thanks on this day. Eight out of 10 Americans will not be in church. They won't be here. Why? Because they're in disobedience. They have no room for the living God, no room to give him thanksgiving. When we are the most blessed of all nations, we as the poor of the poor are comparatively speaking rich compared to other nations of the world. And there are people today who are struggling just to put food on the table. But I'm telling you, Paul, as he said in Romans 8, 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I consider, I reckon, logizomai, it's a mathematical term. It's used of someone who has a ledger. And on one side of the ledger, you put all the heartaches of this world. On the other side of the ledger, you put all the blessings that's in front of us. He says, you can't even begin to compare. This passage is a passage of a sure and certain hope. Secondly, this passage gives us a warning. It gives us a warning. The last verse in this chapter warns us that the only way to gain entrance is to have your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life can come and enter into it. Do you know your name is there for sure this morning? I mean, heaven is a perfect place. There's no sin, no sickness, no goodbyes, no death, not the smallest scintilla of evil. I mean, who wouldn't want to go there? But if your name is not in the Lamb's book of life, I hope she came this morning. A lady told me, I'm pretty sure I go. You don't want to be pretty sure. You want to know that you know that you know that your name is there, and it can be there. It all depends with what you will do with Jesus. 
Now, Holy Father, I thank you this morning that we don't have to be in ignorance. We can know that our names are there because you said the gift of God is eternal life, that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Have you ever done that? Have you ever turned from your own method of saving yourself through human merit and turned to the only one who can save you, who is the way, the truth, and the life? He is the way for those of you who are lost. He is the truth for those of you who are deceived. He is the life for those of you who are empty in your sin, looking for meaning. He came into the world to save sinners. Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? Now, Holy Father, may we this week see people the way you see them, either either heading for eternal blessing or eternal destruction. We can't share with everyone, but we know we can share with someone. Thank you that someone loved us enough to invite us to church, to call us, to walk us through the plan of salvation. Whatever you use, thank you for that person was obediently faithful as a steward of the gospel. Help us to be equally obedient. We ask it for the glory of Jesus and in his name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And maybe there's someone here in this service. Looks like mainly home folk, but not entirely. And you said for the first time, Lord Jesus, save me. I want to give you that opportunity to leave your seat and to come and to make that public confession by baptism, something we do after we're saved. If you're here and you've been saved and baptized and you need a church home, the obedient Christian has a church home. And if you're between church homes and we can service you and help you and you want to come not to whine and complain, but you want to come to serve with us to get into the trenches and to find a place, we would love to have you this morning. So Matt, come and lead us. If you have a decision, step out now and meet me here in the front.